0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another lockdown special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford Blur from Football 365. Players together. It's got a nice ring to it, hasn't it? Not one individual, one club or one organisation, but a group of young men who know how lucky they are to be paid to play football. They're helping others less fortunate than themselves. The direct offer to help the NHS should bury the myth once and for all
2: that footballers don't care. Just as you've been saying, Aid. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we've all been fairly consistent, but I knew that the players themselves wanted to contribute, wanted to help out, but they were being constricted, I think, by the PFA. The PFA wanted to act on their behalf and they were too slow. They didn't read the mood. And also the muddiness brought in by government intervention, the quotes from the, the, you know Matt Hancock from the Premier League. I don't think they were particularly helpful and fair play to the players I think it's a wonderful gesture and it doesn't it show that things can be done pretty quickly things can be organized if you act in the mature responsible way and work together as the as the hashtag says players together I thought the statement was fantastic it was really well balanced and I love the fact that the money's going to go straight to these NHS charities talked about that in the last Football Writers Podcast, Will the Money Go Straight to the NHS Charities? That's what's going to happen. And uh, yeah, I, I can't applaud them highly enough. And it and it's not going to be the only contribution they make because I'm sure that they will make another salary sacrifice. We'll get to that I'm I'm sure again shortly. But for now, let's yeah, let's praise the players here. They've shown a conscience. I always knew they had it, but these things can't be done overnight. I still I still think they've they've put this together, this package very very quickly so well done to everyone involved yeah they've they've taken their time and and made sure they've got it
1: right before they've gone public with it which I thought was you know very impressive they've coordinated it well but also I think this is a really powerful example to others isn't it Seb
0: it sure is Mike I mean I'm not sure where this leaves an organization like the PFA or someone like Gordon Taylor because what the players have done is Most importantly, this is a great act of benevolence and generosity and one the country desperately needs, but inadvertently shames everyone who has dallied over their response. So what the next step is here, I'm not sure, because it sort of inadvertently says, as Adrian mentioned, this wasn't happening quickly enough for us. So we're going to take control. We're going to make a mockery of all the things that we've heard about red tape and logistical issues. And this can't be done because X, Y and Z. And a group of footballers who are always pelted with fairly pejorative cliches about their intelligence have managed to band together on masse, and this seems to be like a group—a group of hundreds of players—and they've managed to organise it coherently and effectively, and delivered it in a way in which the public understands. And and that, I think, this has really serious implications for the other organisations, the other sort of the other nests in football. Um, and I, I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm not sure what the effect of this will be.
1: Well, I think. You know, the key is, you know, as you mentioned, there are hundreds of footballers, the unanimity of purpose that we've seen here. There have been high profile leaders, I suppose, within the campaign. I'm thinking of people like Jordan Henderson and Harry Maguire, but it's across the board and, you know, individuals are emerging almost above and beyond their status as footballers. I'll give you another example of that. Mark Noble at West Ham. Now, he has a history of being socially aware and extremely charitable. He's worked with uh, uh, the Richard House Hospice. Um, this was pointed out by Henry Winter this morning. He's worked for Help for Heroes, the DT38 Foundation, the, the Full Hearts, Full Tummies organisation. At his wedding, he asked his guests not to bring a gift, but donate to charity. Hey, presto, he's now just given £35,000 to help a community effort in Basildon to ensure food and medicines get to some of the most isolated and vulnerable people in the community, when we talk about role models in football aid, that is one role
2: model. yeah, absolutely yeah, i've met I've met Mark a few times before, a lovely guy, very down to earth and and clearly he's a very kind person as well and and he's not he's not the only one there there are tales like that up and down the land, but you won't see it written in newspapers or in pieces on the internet, because players, it's not the sort of thing they want to brag about. Yeah, I I don't think it's as uncommon as as people would expect. Now, I think I read a stat that 2% of people in this country that earn over a million pound a year are footballers. It leaves 98%, doesn't it, of people that are earning extortionate amounts of money. It'd be fascinating to see if they can chip in as well and to help out the NHS obviously they don't, won't have the band of brothers like footballers but but they've really set the tone here of the football family so that's that's brilliant from them i was really interested to see ryan birch when you talk about fo- footballers having a voice you brought this to my attention earlier in the week my uh, ryan birch and really sensible comments and it probably takes the discussion on to the next point in regards to the negotiation with clubs you know t- to put things simply he said look you can't have a 30% deduction across the board. It should be tailored for different clubs should pay, or players at different clubs should pay different amounts. And he also says, and I thought this was the most poignant, and, and it's something I touched on in one of the previous podcasts. He says he doesn't understand why Premier League clubs can't get external short-term loans, borrowing money against broadcast revenues, because they are sure to return. You know, Football will continue, and the money will return once again so so rather than giving money directly back to the clubs I, I i think it should go to the rest of football That that is that is the area at the moment that is a little crack isn't it we've got the nhs they've been sorted they've been helped out by the footballers what now for clubs that cu- don't have any income to run their clubs at the moment i'm talking about league one league two non-league football that is where the money from the next batch of salary sacrifices should go in my opinion and I do think that is slightly more complicated well it certainly is because it basically points out the administration of of the English
1: game doesn't it seven I suppose what we will be doing after this crisis and to an extent even during it is to question the old certainties I look at football now and I see something as a model of which isn't going to work in the future, in a new future. How would you like to see football rearrange itself?
0: I think with an added focus on responsibility, Mike. I, th- I think what will stay with me from a football perspective from this crisis is that football seemed to be at a point of emergency from day one. Which, when you think about the amounts of money flowing into the game, the you know not just broadcasting revenue but commercial revenue, there was a panic within twenty four hours. Now, that to me suggests, obviously, a lack of contingency. And I, I do accept this is an unprecedented situation. But it also describes how clubs leverage themselves in terms of the percentage of their income they're now committing to wage bills, and what their outgoings are, and the assumptions that exist within their business model. I don't know what the answer to that is, because imposing financial restrictions on clubs from on high, as we've seen, is is not always successful. So I don't know whether this has to be legislative, But I think there has to be an emphasis on the game's foundations. Even at a Premier League level, if if you're three weeks into this sort of situation and we're talking quite rightly, Adrian was referencing sort of Ryan Bertrand's comments about taking loans out and the need for pay cuts, but it's also scrambled. And how can this be with an industry of this size and an industry so affluent mm. and one which one which is very much
2: multinational? It, it's mm. absolutely staggering. It's, it's unnecessarily bloated as well, though, isn't it? Football. I, I always look at, at clubs and their staff and, and the amount of staff that they now they now employ. You know, I, I do think that they could trim down. I certainly, I've always said that that playing squads should be trimmed down. I don't think football clubs need. 50 or 60 professional players I, re- I really don't and 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 you know you can spread that around the game it, it just might force force teams clubs up and down the land just to to rebalance things out and to and to have a more more streamlined slimmer personnel and therefore slimmer expenditure as well but look, it will salary caps will, will will be brought up I'm sure over the next next few months yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I do feel that the bubble may well have burst in terms of extortionate salaries. And, and footballers may just have to get used to living on, <laughs> and I don't want to use the term, but more modest salaries than, than what they've grown accustomed to. I don't think it's going to spiral out of control in a hurry again. I've been
0: watching Sunderland till I die yeah, um, yeah. over the last few weeks. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the things that struck me was the, the incident with the cryo chamber. Um, yeah, yeah, where I think yeah. it's Charlie Methven or, or Stuart Donaldson, right? Uh, this costs a hundred thousand pounds. Who uses it? And it turns <laughs> out that actually former chief executive Martin Bain used to go in after work, but not <laughs> a single player had ever used it. And I think I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I know it's, it's a funny point, but I think it, it represents something quite serious in in the wastage that Adrian's talking about. I think football in the future needs to ask itself whether it actually needs that. And then that mm. and, and the, that in that sentence refers to mm. players facilities Mm. um, any kind of expenditure which puts a strain on the club's infrastructure do do they need to charter
2: their own planes to 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 travel you know 200 miles up up and down the country i mean no the arsenal Arsenal chartered a plane to go from london to norwich didn't they yeah exactly but they're not they're not the only club yeah they're not the only club that would do something like that yeah it it is examples like that cryo chambers extravagant (laughs) modes of transport yeah there's so much wastage and hopefully that won't be such a bad thing in my in my opinion just to to trim things back a bit it needs must yeah you've got a practical
1: experience of the of the lower leagues aid mm-hmm. i was speaking recently to um, a lower league manager and you know his view actually surprised me to a, to a large degree he basically said well look to be perfectly honest players in league 1 league 2 don't really need to be full time You know, you could play part time football. The standard is such that it wouldn't drop that much. And also, if you said, look at the other countries, most other countries have two major leagues or divisions and then the rest is part
2: time. Mm. Do you think we might go back to the future on that one? Mm, It's a really, really interesting point. Oh, possibly if if clubs are struggling that much in terms of of making ends meet then it might it might be the only way but it just seems like such a retro step doesn't it it seems like a backwards step especially when in recent years the national league have, have pretty much all gone full time and you know even clubs in in leagues below that have, have ventured into it oh. I don't I, I wouldn't like to say players themselves have to will have to reevaluate their own priorities, won't they? Back in the day when I fell out of league football, I went and played for Stevenage in the National League and they were just as strong as any league team. They had players that could easily have played in the league, but they had careers and they didn't want to sacrifice their careers for full time football that took the two salaries and were better off for it. And I have to say it was great fun. It's probably one of the one of the best times I had in in football, playing with these guys. You know, real men that had experienced life on a daily basis, proper life, and they were good enough to play high level football as well. Maybe that is the future. I think it would be a shame, but if clubs can no longer afford to pay thousands of pounds a week to players or or money in excess of say, I don't know, a hundred thousand pounds a year, which is not uncommon in League One, clubs can't do that moving forwards maybe they will have to go part-time. And, yeah, would that be a bad thing? I don't know.
1: Yeah, but there are still people out there, you know, living on planet Pluto, really. I, I, I saw with, not surprise, but probably with horror, right on cue, Toby Alderweireld's agent came out with the you know, the polemic, if we let footballers terminate their contracts, they could leave for free, if wages are cut. That's the old days of
0: talking, isn't it? Oh. I mean that it, it's such a tone death thing <laughs> yeah. to say. Yeah. I, I, I mean it. It's kind of so. We spoke in the last episode. Mm. We, we we vented a little bit about mm. um, the things that politicians have said and the appetites in this country that are aimed towards professional footballers. And whilst those are unjust, and those will undoubtedly continue, when you hear about things like that, that's why it happens. That's why it happens is because people don't think before they speak. They don't appreciate how their words are going to sound outside of the big room full of footballers. You know, because when the game's working and, it, it, and it's just press and players and agents and media offices, and you know that's fine because every, everything has its context and everyone in that room understands the context. When it becomes public. Anything that anybody says relating to the game at the moment becomes another stick with we- with which to beat the sport. It's just a, a ridiculous position to take. It's mm. a ridiculous argument to even begin because it's just mm. it's just not appropriate. And I, it's mm. it's baffling that anyone would think otherwise.
2: Yeah, it was, yeah, I agree. Tone deaf was a fantastic way to respond to to those comments. What I do think might happen is we might see a, a whole wave of contracts being cancelled. Clubs looking at the three or four years they've got to pay X, pay a certain player X amount of money and cutting deals. I do, I do feel that 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 may happen in the not too distant future, but yeah, look, come on football, football will coordinate over this. And, and if players are looking to expose loopholes to, to get themselves away from clubs, then then they're an absolute disgrace.
1: Yeah. Speaking of which, I know this is your club, Seb, so it might be a painful conversation over (laughs) the next couple of minutes. Um, (laughs) If someone finds Tottenham's crisis management strategy, can you do them a favour and, uh, and burn it?
0: I mean, I, I'm almost lost for words. Um,
2: do you I, still support them, Seb? Just can I kind of confirm this, if you, if you, if you, you know, it's all become time? a little
0: bit tenuous, Abe, But yeah, I, I am. I am still on that side of the fence. I am, um, I and mean, let me draw. Let me draw a little line in the sand here. So I'm happy to condemn the Jose Mourinho incident and the lack of judgment and the just the sheer stupidity of trying to hold a, a training session uh, in his training used, kit, in his training yeah. kit, which I don't think he's taken off in six months. He's he's, <laughs> worn, he's worn the same thing every time I've seen him. And anytime he's pictured, he's wearing that, that, that purple tracksuit. So that's one aspect of this, but I'm happy as a fan to recuse myself of any association with that, because those are individuals making bad decisions and they don't implicate on me as a supporter. The other side of this is the club's official position, which does reflect on me as a fan inadvertently, because as a supporter, I am tacitly endorsing the values of the club. That is the way football works, unfortunately. It works differently for for different people. Different people feel different, different degrees of attachment. That's absolutely fine. I cannot mount any defence... Not necessarily just for the decision that's been made, but the way it's been communicated. I spoke to the supporters trust very late last night for an article which people can read on Football Three Six Five, and that's very much the trust's position on this, is that they don't want to close off options. They're not saying this must not happen, this must not happen, this must not happen, but that the club must tread carefully because it is the club's reputation that they're dealing with. Because I, I think it'd be very naive to think that once the game returns and... The stadiums are full again, and everyone's terribly relieved about that. That everyone's just going to forget about the way clubs handled themselves during this period. That's just not going to happen. These are associations being built. It's like you're you're weaving new synonyms into the into the crest and the shirt. It's it's. I'm not going to beg on a podcast, but I really, really would like to hear some kind of reconsideration from what is my club. It's very, very important to me, and I I think I speak for an awful lot of people when I say that.
1: Yeah and I'm not making a tribal point here because you know, I I do love Tottenham's you know original Danny Blanchflower uh, ethos uh, you know the game is about glory in that spirit Adrian mm. take off your Arsenal hat mm. do you think a club like Spurs will be damaged in the long term because of the way they're behaving now?
2: Possibly, yeah. I, I do think that fingers will be pointed at them. I do, I, maybe they'll get more stick when when fans are allowed back into stadiums. Yeah, and I, I do think that people will, will remember how they've behaved. There is still time for a U-turn, of course. Liverpool did. No sign of it, of course. Doesn't seem to want to listen to the fans' groups that, that Seb was referencing there. No, I do, I do think that, yeah, Spurs', Spurs reputation will, will be damaged for for a long, long Time, But look, once the football starts starts up again, then then I guess our focus will be on the game itself and and, and not necessarily everything that goes on on around it but yeah, look for the eighth richest club in the world to with, with the highest paid chief executive to be acting this way I, I think is is so disgraceful. I really do in in a way if, if he was I just think taking the government money is, is taking advantage if you really are struggling to make ends meet. Then and 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 your employees are unable to work at the moment. Then and I think a short-term wage cut for everybody wouldn't be. I think that people would would be able to accept that from from any Premier League club. But to be taking handouts to fund it, eighty percent's worth, I think is is just just not on. You have to communicate this. You yeah. have to because there is a a way
0: of explaining this. For instance, like uh, football, football deserves context. Yesterday. Tesla announced that they're going to be furloughing staff Mm. and Elon Musk is worth $30 billion, which makes Joe Lewis's Mm. $5 billion wealth seem like he makes him seem like a market trader. So it deserves that wealth. But you have to communicate, you have to explain why you're doing things Mm. and make the public understand you cannot be you cannot be right at the front of the queue when this begins. And you, you cannot release matter-of-fact statements which imply that people understand things that they just don't, and it's it's not fair to expect. Did you them say to. Tesco, Tesla?
2: Oh, Tesla! Right, I was going to say. I was yeah, going to say e- Elon Musk hasn't bought Tesco. E- yeah, no, I was, I was <laughs> going to say that Tesco are doing a roaring trade as far as I can tell at the moment. So no, he yeah, hasn't look, branched out. To, no, to, no. To, to protect to protect if you need to trim trim back wages to protect those jobs in the long term. I think I think most employees that, that are unable to work and they're stuck at home, I think they would maybe accept in the short term if it's gonna be three months, four months. We'll take a twenty percent here. If if that's going to protect their their job, I just feel that in, in, in Tottenham's case, taking the handout is is absolutely well, for reasons we've we've banged on about wrong. Yeah. Well let's turn our attention back to football
1: and football as it was, and football as it was shown through the prism of Liverpool Football Club in Europe. You know, as you rightly said, Aid, it was a good thing that uh, Mm. Liverpool recognised the damage that their furloughing original decision had actually created. So they've fair play for actually admitting their mistakes on that. Mm. But I want to dwell on what I see as the real Liverpool, which is an emotionally engaged football club. The latest BT Sports series on Sunday uh, focuses on four... Matches the four-nil win over Barcelona, the four-three win over Dortmund, Istanbul, and the uh, win over Tottenham, which basically seems about a decade ago. <laughs> I want to start by looking at of those games. You know, we can only probably start one way, and that is in As- Istanbul. Mm you know we know about the drama of that game 3-0 down at half time 3-3 they win on pens Dudek's the hero but it's sometimes it's the little things which stick in the memory and i remember there was paolo maldini who I th- he was a wonderful player to watch just a a poet not a footballer and i remember seeing him get his losers medal and tear it off his his, his his when it was around his knee, mm. just tore it, and it was it was really contemptuous almost. And in that moment, I recognised that actually there's a nobility sometimes in defeat, and they re- people reveal themselves in defeat. What are your memories of that that night, Seb, and almost like the human side of that game?
0: Well, I mean, initially it was the way. Those Liverpool players trooped off the field at half time because I, I think back to the first half of that game and Milan were just brilliant. I remember Kaká's pass for Hernán Crespo. It's one of the best passes I've ever seen in in, <laughs> in Champions League history. And you just thought at that point, Liverpool are not good enough to be here, and this is becoming almost a point of national embarrassment. I think what I remember. I mean, I not being a Liverpool fan, you're a little bit distanced from it, but. Uh, I'll always marvel at, at that moment in sport where something remarkable becomes inevitable, if that makes sense. So once Gerrard scores and the game starts to change, everything from that point on becomes amazing. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a story for the ages, of course, but you know, it's going to happen and you, you can feel the momentum in a game change. And then Dita shovels, Smith's shot into his far corner. And you, and you just know, you know, from that point on, Liverpool going to win the game and, all of these things sort of fall into line. So the penalty decision, the rebound that falls right uh, at Alonso's feet, and then do like, save at the end of stoppage, at the end of it, extra time. It's like plotted football. It's football with a script. And... That, that's kind of counter to everything we know about the game in, in, in the modern day, where it's supposed to be dispassionate and sterile and won by the team with the most money and the biggest wage spend. Mm-hmm. And yet you have these little stories where it, it becomes like a kind of a human passion play. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was an amazing, amazing oh. thing to watch.
2: It was, it was brilliant, Mike. Um, I, I think Liverpool, when I think of Liverpool Football Club, the first thing that comes to my, my mind is actually the support. It's the fan base. It's the colour. That I don't know what it is. It's Liverpool without a packed Anfield on a European night, or, or or in Istanbul on a glory night in Turkey. I, I, Liverpool is not the same club. I went to the semi final with a friend of mine, this big Liverpool fan, David Holland, and and it was unreal in terms of the noise levels. Chelsea, I, I'd never experienced anything. I'd been to thousands of games, and then, and the noise was frightening. And they really intimidated Chelsea that night. And, and, it, and it made me, for that short period, it made me really root for Liverpool. Um, so we went to a bar in the city of London and it was we, we got there very, very early, probably like four o'clock, rammed already, full of Liverpool fans. <laughs> and we had a wonderful evening, I've got to say. Had a fantastic evening. Obviously at half-time it was all a bit desolate and everyone was sort of traipsing around. But then second half, what happened, happened. And it went it just it all kicked off as you might imagine and 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 my friend David stood next to me he's going absolutely mental and just this is this is after the after the penalties have just finished and he goes I'm going I'm to propose I'm going to propose I've got to do it I've got to do it I've got to do it this is the best moment I can't believe it I'm I'm going to propose. And his wife-to-be was was with us that night. She was just sort of getting battered around the place with everyone jumping around. So he whispered in my ear. <laughs> and he said, follow I'm going to go to St Paul's Cathedral, I'm going to, which was a short walk. Follow me and then we'll go out. We'll kick on and we'll celebrate. And, and I followed him up the road for about 200 <laughs> yards. And then I just thought, hang on, what am I doing? Like, this is his moment. So I left him to it. And, and, but they're still happily married. They've got two lovely kids. So that's what that night meant to, to my mate David. Um, it was just it was just un, unforgettable. Brilliant. That uh, is brilliant, mate. Absolutely. <laughs> and I suppose it,
1: it takes us in nicely to the, the Dortmund game which actually Klopp at the time likened to Istanbul you know there was a quote there where he said you could feel it hear it smell it do you get what he was on about Seb
0: yeah to a degree because I think it, there is a Anfield has become a kind of a self-fulfilling environment mm. for Liverpool um, looking back on that on that Dortmund game now it's kind of been superseded by Barcelona like the Barcelona performance because it's kind of it's the little brother isn't it <laughs> Um but it's I, I I think it's very still very significant because it was a kind of precursor to what Anfield would become. Like the club always spoke about when he interviewed for his job with FSG, he, he spoke about activating the Anfield atmosphere. And that game was one of the first instances under his leadership where you saw a really top-class side. Okay, Dortmund had fallen off a little bit by then, but a really top-class side actually emotionally crumble in that atmosphere. And that was very, very interesting. It was kind of... Yeah, it was instructive of who Klopp was as a you know not just as a a, a technocrat but also a, a leader in the kind of the the more romantic sense. So it's interesting. It, it's it's thunder has definitely been stolen now though. Unfortunately,
1: <laughs> I mean my, yeah. my memory of that night is yeah. Klopp being wound up to the point of absolute frenzy. It was a bit like Simeone on steroids, you know, <laughs> uh, not literally, metaphorically I better say. <laughs> um, he was getting the crowd.
2: Yeah. At it. Well, he wanted it, didn't he? It was, it was, it was so personal to him, and he. I think what was interesting was that he he never gave in in terms of his animated, you know, antics on the touchline, and I think maybe that transmitted to the players. They never gave in. Of course, twice during the game at different stages, they needed three goals to go through. Three more goals, and and when, when Royce made it three-one, I think there was about just over half an hour left. They needed three goals in half an hour. It, it, it was an incredible match, and obviously Lovren getting the goal right on injury time w- was amazing. And and what preceded the game, if you remember as well, was was, was the commemoration of, of Hillsborough. So they'd had a, an impeccable moment of silence ahead of kickoff, and then the cauldron erupted. It was it was an just an unreal night at Anfield. But yeah, you're right. I think I don't think the four 0 Barca game would have happened if four three Dortmund. Hadn't happened yeah. previous to it. Yeah, let's let's dwell on that Barcelona game. It
1: will be probably remembered for the legend of the ball boy and quick thinking of of Alexander Arnold feigning oh. to leave the corner. That was just a moment that you can't script. Although some people were saying afterwards, well, actually, the analysts worked out that Barcelona switched off initially at corners. I don't believe that. No, f- that was just a. A flash of absolute intuition and genius wasn't it's,
2: it? It's, it's my favourite assist of all time. I, I don't exaggerate there. I do, I just think it was it was genius. It was a moment of footballing genius from from a young player, very young player at the time. Just to think with that kind of clarity in in that moment, and then to deliver the right way to pass, the right accuracy of pass. It was a footballing treat. It really was to watch it, and a, and a great way to, to seal an, an unreal. Game, yeah. Alexander Arnold, by the way, I've just written a piece on him for the Premier League. We've been talking about key tactical players. Now, when I put this piece together with the stats, I'm, oh my goodness, like the stats for Alexander Arnold this season are, are off the scale. This kid is a fullback, a winger, a playmaker, all rolled into one. Pure, mm. pure world class. I tell you, this boy, and that moment. I think that was one of the highlights of, of recent Champions Leagues for me. Mm. And was one of the enduring lessons of that night, Seb?
1: The fact that a team, even a club as storied as Barcelona, can be over reliant on one man. You know, the identity of that man won't be any surprise to you, Lionel Messi. But even in those later stages where he was set up for a chance when other people were, were probably best suited to actually try and convert it... Was that the moment? That was that the day or the evening that almost pinpointed the limitations of a legend.
0: Yeah, I, I think in, in hindsight you could probably write a book about that game, <laughs> uh, about what it described in Barcelona and and that dependency on Messi, which had been growing and growing for such a long time, and the kind of the the dysfunction that runs the political dysfunction at the club itself that had allowed that situation to to come to pass. It's <laughs> I'm, I'm wary of talking about the limitations of Lionel Messi. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, be I feel careful, like that's sir. the kind come of conversation on. which can come <laughs> back to bite me. Um, but I, I think the thing that I take from that is, first of all, before you get to that dependence on him, it's the neuroses of Barcelona and the kind of the the fear that can can reside in a football team. Obviously, in this instance, it was mm. sort of it was left over by what had happened in Rome the season before and how that can 12 months on that can afflict a a group of professional players at that level of the game to such an extent that that is the result it's quite an amazing thing for someone for someone that played the the, the game at no level at all i like just kick about amateur stuff that's a, that's an amazing thing to watch um mm-hmm. to to see a it was like the the the, the Paris Saint-Germain turn around the bastard on the on the right side of it's exactly mm-hmm. the same principle that you have these fears and these insecurities that sort of manifest in amazing ways and i i think that's ultimately what led to the dependency on messi and the sort of the the shrinkage of 10 players and the, the, just the hope that somehow he was going to produce another bit of magic once mm. one more time it was a mm. uh, it was staggering staggering evening though. what
2: what shouldn't be forgotten though is that barcelona if they, if they hadn't left their their shooting boots at the new camp they, they could easily have scored four goals that night themselves they had that good chances but every shot went straight at Alisson. Every single effort from Suarez had a few. that, um, yeah. yeah, various players, Coutinho. It wasn't all one-way traffic. Barca had plenty of opportunities in the game. But I think they froze. I, I think they froze. Would you remember
0: that, that chance that Dembele missed at the, be- at the end of the first leg? Mm. Should have been 4-0. Yeah. That's one of the worst misses I've seen uh, <laughs> at, at, at that stage of the Champions League. Mm. So 4-0 down. Coming to the second leg, you yeah. got no chance. No. So it's just yeah. uh, they, they well, were well, incredibly profligate.
1: Yeah, I'd like if I could just to to carry that Barcelona focus into the tournament focus that we you know we're looking at tournaments which me- meant a lot to us personally. My turn again today, and I'm going to choose Mexico '86. I know we've spoken about the hand of God. I just want to look at it in a wider perspective. And speaking of Barcelona the sliding doors moment that Gary Lineker had and experienced in that tournament. You know, people remember that hat-trick against Poland in Qualify, in the, in the group stage. Probably what they don't remember is that he was struggling for his place to a degree. He gets his hat-trick. Barcelona are interested. Bingo. He goes straight to Barcelona after that tournament a career is made or his first career is made, his football career is made. That just shows you how narrow this dividing line is between
2: success and failure, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, goodness me, there are so many sliding doors moments in football, you know, every season, every, every week in a way. There's not a lot often to choose between footballers of a certain standard, but it's taking your chance... When it matters most, and and yeah, Lineker did that, didn't he? It was, it was a brilliant tournament. Obviously, Diego Maradona owned Mexico '86, but but the Golden Boot did go, did go to Lineker, didn't it? Yeah, it was. It got him the move, and yeah, the rest is history. What a career he had! It, it was a brilliant tournament. I loved it. I should have m- mentioned the kit, by the way. You know, I'm a big fan of mentioning referencing kits here. The '82 World Cup kit for England, the Admiral, was brilliant. Well, but what I remember about England's kit of Mexico was that it was the first I could ever remember that was tailored for the conditions. It had those little, right? it had those little little um, holes in it, little mini mini pinpricks in in the design of, of of the kit. It was it was almost like a mesh, just to aerate the players in in the heat of of Mexico, which was just unreal. The other thing that stands out for me, aside from football, is the Azteca itself, Mike. I mean, you were you were there, weren't you, at the Azteca? You, yeah, you could, it's mean, it was a fantastic stadium. I mean, watching on TV, it was the hum, just the hum of 114,500 people inside that stadium in the burning hot Mexico City. I mean, it must have been unbearable playing conditions. You know, when I think about the, the quality of some of the football we saw in that tournament... It must have been a real challenge for the players to actually get through 90 minutes. Yeah, it, it was. And, you know,
1: teams had different pre-tournament strategies, uh, which meant that we were shuttling all over the world, basically, to, to cover them. England went to Colorado and to have altitude training. You know, Northern Ireland went to Albuquerque. But as you say, Ade, nothing can actually prepare you for the heat it's, it's that type of heat which basically hits the back of your throat. It burns the back of your throat. And when you bear in mind that most of us were also suffering from what we called the Mexico cough at the time, which was created by, you know, in Mexico City especially, it was hugely polluted. And so everyone was, was under the weather. And so for footballers to play in those extreme conditions and to play at that level was extraordinary. And they were acting against almost their traditions and you know, everything that they'd become they had been used to. In the early stage of the tournament I shuttled between Northern Ireland and England. And with Northern Ireland we were based in Guadalajara, this sort of castellated hotel in the hills, which was pretty bizarre to say the least. Billy Bingham was in charge of Northern Ireland, very sort of garrulous character. It was a really interesting mix in the squad. You had Norman Whiteside, who, frankly, was one of the great, I think, one of the great tragedies of football that yeah. his knee injuries prevented him becoming the, the great enduring player that he should have been and could have been. Now, these... You know these guys there were a lot of very pale faces in that team if you can say, you know a lot, a lot of a lot of gingers and for them to come up against uh, a really tough group they they began with a draw against Algeria Whiteside had put them in in front. they were done by Spain two down in 18 minutes Colin Clark scored a goal just after half time and then at the Jalisco Stadium in Guadalajara they played Brazil. 51,000 people there. Absolute furnace conditions. They lost 4-0. It was actually Pat Jennings' 41st birthday. It was 119th cap, his last game for Ireland. And the thing that... There are two things which stand out for me of that game. The second goal, the second Brazilian goal, it was a fullback, back uh, Josimar. He's out on the right-hand side. He takes two touches going infield. And he absolutely... Muller's a shot from thirty yards with his right foot, and it was a, one of those classic postage stamp goals, right in the postage stamp. So that was one. And then after the after the game, we went back with the players to the hotel, and there was a they they set up this little disco in it, and there was there was a there was a, there oh, was a dance floor, which Happy was probably days. about eight foot square. It was bizarre. So as the evening went on, obviously you know some tinctures had been taken. And I remember sitting with Whiteside, and he was talking about the Brazilians like a fan. And he, he said, You know, he came up against the defender, Julio Cesar, I think, from memory. He said, This guy was walking around with a cigar in one hand and a tray of drinks in the other. He said, I've never seen anything like it. And they're the memories that World Cups should generate. Yeah. Of those teams, Seb. Are there any other teams that they, there was a great, there was another great game in that tournament, France and Brazil. They, as nations, they seem to spark one another off, don't they?
0: Yeah, they do. They do, obviously, for, I mean, uh, for younger fans, France 98. But also, I, I think probably the memory of that Zidane performance as well in uh, in 2006. Is one of the greatest. It's interesting, though, like the, 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 looking back at the kind of the history of, the, of French football in the eighties. That's another group of players just struck by terrible neuroses and 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 fear, and and it's amazing how little that team actually managed to achieve given the players within it. I know, remember players like you know Platini, but also Didier six as well in there. I mean, so just from my my memory is. Is obviously very different because I when when I think of when I think of 1986, I'm thinking of shirts. So I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Michelle Platini and massive collars and, mm. and just and the sideburns and the hair and and the and the colour of it. So it's a little bit different. Mm. Although Mike, I wanted to ask you something. Like in '86, did you have mixed zones at World Cups then?
1: Well, there were there were sort of informal ones. We just used to. You know, scatter around afterwards. Mainly, I've, I think actually the access to players was better then. You know, as I said yeah. earlier, when you know when I was with Northern Ireland, we lived we lived cheek by jowl. We we you know we we lived in the same well, you hotel. Did, you danced
2: with them, Mike, didn't you? I mean, you must have done the hokey pokey with them at this disco. <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: we did. You know it was well, it was it was more like sort of the um, <laughs> um, it was a lurch more than anything else at that particular time of night. But um, it was yeah, it was interesting. And you know, I look back and the Guardian had a guy called Robert Armstrong there and there was a camp follower who who turned up in guadalajara and she she looked really familiar and i saw her about two or three years ago on television it was kate howey the um, <laughs> the oh, mp the correspondent <laughs> ah yeah. Right, okay yeah so she you know she turned up to as a sort of you know because the, the the other great thing about world cups is the fans you know you mentioned liverpool fans mm-hmm. uh, but the northern ireland fans were fantastic oh, right. and the england ones as well and also I think what Mexico gave us was the classic injury story as well. I was, I was, I was talking yesterday, funny enough, to Chris Wilder, and he was talking about telling his players, you know, be like Brian Robson, get in the box. And he said he couldn't believe it that most of his players had, had no conception of what he was talking about.
2: <laughs>
1: England went into that tournament yeah. with, you know, Robbo having dislocated his shoulder, playing for Man United against West Ham. He fell awkwardly against Morocco, which was a bit of a shambles of a game. Injured again. In that moment, I think, England lost any chance to beat Argentina and then to end the Maradona story.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, Robson was, was a sensational player. And I, I still reference Robson. I do. When I think of players running into the box late, He he's the f- first player that, that comes to mind. And, uh, and yeah, it's something that, that's been a little bit lost. That's amazing that yeah the modern day players don't know him. One one other thing we talked about France underachieving. I think Denmark had a sensational team, didn't they? I know you've waxed lyrical about them from '84. In '86 they were brilliant as well, but but then they got stuffed, didn't they? In, I think the round of sixteen by Spain and Butcher Agüero, one, one of the great names of, of of Spanish football, got got four goals. In that one, so that was a fascinating Great game. nickname, yeah. by the way. There, yeah, the vulture, the vulture that's a great nickname. And the that's other an thing, excellent the nickname. other one, the other, the, the other one standout memory for me because I was only what was I 11, I think, at the time. Hugo Sanchez, the hometown hero or the home nation hero with his sort of somersaults, colorful character, wasn't he? He was a, a real star at that tournament, yeah, yeah. Psychedelic kits, didn't he, Seb? <laughs> as you're <were> the expert, <laughs> <laughs> actually,
0: you know, what, Hugo Sanchez. Talking, talking of players that don't get mentioned enough, he's another one because he occurred sort of before the the nineteen ninety two crossover when everything turned into Champions League and nothing had ever existed bef- in the years before. You guess Sanchez gets forgotten, but what a what a goal scorer he was! I mean, you can, I mean, younger people can still find his highlights on YouTube. Uh, younger people is, includes me actually, doesn't it? Which is <laughs> rather, rather nice. To all right, say. all right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that, that's um, if you're looking for a way to to wild away a few lockdown minutes, then 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 try some of his goal compilations.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, basically well as as you're the youngest member of the team, we'll give you first go then Seb on today's thought for the day. What would you like to tell us?
0: I think it stems from what I what I said about Tottenham earlier. So when I brought this up on Twitter, a lot of people said when the game returns, everything will just default back to normal and it will be as if none of this has ever happened. I, I don't think that's true. And I I'd like to urge clubs to remember that the decisions they make don't just affect them. They don't just affect executives and shareholders and players because fans have a share in this too. And I know that as an owner, no matter how wealthy you are or what you've helped the club achieve, you are really just a custodian. And with that comes this responsibility not to interfere with the kind of the the overarching ideology of what a club stands for. Now, as we've been recording, Southampton's players have been the uh, the first in the Premier League to agree to a, a pay cut. And I can imagine if I was a Southampton fan, I would be proud of that. I'd be proud that my club has managed to do that for the greater good, that people have been able to put, a, put aside self-interest. And that's an example to follow. Now, whichever group in the game you're you're referring to, whether it be players or, or teams or owners, it doesn't matter. I think now is really a good time to set an example. And I, I I want the game to show its best side, Mike, because how it behaves reflects on all of us, specifically when it's our clubs, but also because it's our pastime. It's our profession, yes, but there's an awful lot of people that dedicate almost all of their weekends to football. And so it's imperative that the game doesn't let them down, that it doesn't make them feel foolish for having done that for the most of their lives.
2: Well said. I Yeah, mine's really just a, a message of of hope really you know where I stand on on the return of football and I'm still sort of dreaming about it envisaging <laughs> the return and I as I've said all along I, I'd prefer it to be when when fans are safe to to come into stadiums but yeah one story caught my eye and it, it's, it's prompting my thought for the day and that's that is one of hope a health passport app I don't know if you've seen this story I think there's a, there's a there's technology out there a British company that's de, that's developing um an app whereby you you know people can be checked in terms of have they had have they had coronavirus have they got the antibodies are they safe to go into the stadium are they safe to buy a ticket and and and, and they'll be able to be screened through this app and therefore allowed to buy a ticket to, to enter the game and it obviously it'll be gradual and, and phased in but if that is possible I th- i think that is quite an exciting development it might mean we get you know a quarter full stadiums to start with or and whatnot and, and gradually build them up but but that for me would would be a sign of real progress and, and using technology to you know as a means to to get us back to a normal way of life and and to get us back to watching the game that we love so much
1: yeah that day can't come too soon can it i suppose i'll end with spurs you yeah, know as we discussed they're behaving wretchedly But I want to end with a Spurs legend. As we speak, Jimmy Greaves remains in hospital. Now more than ever, we need heroes, whether they work in an isolation ward or once wove their magic on a football pitch. We're praying for you, Jim. Thanks to you for joining us and please stay safe out there.